0: You'd find your place in God's word. That's where we're going to be today. Psalm chapter 26. Over the last couple of Sundays, we've heard from Brother Paul on the subject of brotherly love. If you did not hear his message, I'd encourage you to check it out uh, on the podcast or our YouTube channel. And then last week from Brother Ethan on the truth that saving faith leads us to delight in Christ and the gospel, in the kingdom of heaven and the expanse of the gospel to all nations. Both of these messages were on point. They were timely. They were excellent. And I want to encourage you to check them out. But today we resume our our summer series in the book of Psalms by looking at Psalm 26. I want to ask you uh, if you would hear with me the word of God together. Of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have "'Trusted in the Lord without wavering. "'Prove me, O Lord, and try me, test my heart and my mind. "'For your steadfast love is before my eyes, "'and I walk in your faithfulness. "'I do not sit with men of falsehood, "'nor do I consort with hypocrites. "'I hate the assembly of evildoers, "'and I will not sit with the wicked.'" I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Let's pray together. God, help this word from David's pen, inspired through your Holy Spirit, to come alive in our minds and in our hearts today. Spirit of God, we believe you authored this word, and we believe you still illumine your word, God, that what you have inspired, you still apply to our lives, to our minds, to our hearts, to where we are today, and God, there might be someone here this morning who feels like they are slipping, like their their foot is, is on the edge, like... Like they're not standing on level ground, but David in verse 12 proclaims, I, I stand on level ground. We pray, God, for anyone who, who's at risk today, that they would find the level ground that's available only through the shed blood of Christ. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In many of, of David's Psalms, we discern a tension between the world's way out of difficulty and the way of the Lord which seems to take us right through difficulty. This was true in Psalm 25, and it is again in Psalm 26, a psalm where David seeks vindication from the Lord on the basis of his integrity. He says, God, I've been living for You. Yet, when we get to the middle of the psalm, it is not David's integrity that's in view, but instead the the wondrous deeds of the Lord and the, the altar that compel David's praise. And we know that there's really only one true king who is perfectly blameless. And this is King Jesus, the Son of God. We know that David is not saved by his own innocence, but instead is firmly trusting in the Lord, the promised Son, who will be perfectly innocent in his place. And yet, David's trust in the coming king is so real that it it begins to change Him. That His trust in Yahweh, the, the Lord who has promised to send His Son, begins to impact His life in such a way that in Psalm 26 He describes Himself in his, his innocence, His integrity. He is living so much looking to Christ that He begins to look like Christ. Isn't that how it should be in the Christian life? That the more we look to Jesus, the more we begin to look like Jesus. So this psalm really works on two different planes. First, we, we see genuine trust in the Lord leads us to live differently from the world. If we look to Christ for salvation, then in our, our lives, like David's life, will begin to look more and more like Jesus. And yet, at the same time, we can also read Psalm 26 almost like a prayer of Jesus Himself, the true Davidic King, who when faced with enemies who are seeking to undermine Him in His his mission, He resists temptation and He perfectly entrusts Himself to His Father in the sure hope of victory through the cross and in the resurrection. This certainty that David displays in the face of the accusations of his enemies is expressed in the last verse where David says, He will stand on level ground. Surely he will bless the Lord in the assembly. So this morning, I'm calling this sermon, Standing on level ground in a world that wants you to fall. Aren't you glad to know that there's some level ground in a world that wants you to slip, in a world that wants you to tumble, in a world that wants you to fall? But if we're going to stand the test of time, if we're going to endure to the end, if we're going to have persevering, enduring, saving faith in Christ... The first thing David shows us in verses 1 through 3 is to stand. We've got to live by the Lord's standard and invite His judgment. If we're going to stand on level ground, we've got to live by the Lord's standard and invite His judgment. Unfortunately, today, there are many so called Christians who are not living by the Lord's standard, but instead are adopting the world's standards. They're not living for God's approval but for the approval of men. And that is no way to stand on solid ground. Indeed, it's a way that ends in eternal destruction. The Apostle Paul tells us, do not be self-deceived. In other words, don't call yourself a Christian and then have nothing to do with Christ or Christianity or the Lord's standards or the Lord's judgments and believe that that kind of faith is going to stand up in the judgment. It won't. So David in verse 1 calls upon the Lord to vindicate Him. A request for vindication implies that there's someone bringing an accusation. As I was meditating on this psalm this week, I couldn't get past the first verse. Vindicate me, O Lord. I thought about some of the accusations that come to the life of a believer. Did you know Satan and his henchmen love to bring up sins from your past and tell you that God is going to punish you now for a sin that he already punished his son to redeem you from? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in Christ, if you are believing in Him and the enemy wants to come and say, well, this is happening in your marriage or in your workplace because of something you did 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago that you've confessed and repented from and rebuked, then that's, an, that's an, a false accusation. Vindicate me, O Lord. What about people telling us in, the, in our culture today, that you're not loving because you're standing for truth. Does this not hit us right between the eyes? We live in a world that that says love is love. Just, Just don't define it. But the Bible always puts truth and love together. You can't love people and ignore the truth. You can't say... Jesus wants to accept you and embrace you, but his standard is just like that of the world. He has a whole different standard. It's an otherworldly standard, it's God's standard. And yet the world keeps telling Christians, well, you're just not very loving because you want to uphold the truth. What about people who bring up our past because they want to cover up their present? What about people who Ignore 500 acts of kindness and generosity and then one perceived uh, uh, perceived slight or or missed up. And then they just hold that against you forever and ever. And and David is facing from his enemies accusations, attack. And he says, vindicate me, O Lord. When he's he's faced with this barrage of threats and attacks and accusations as as king, to be sure he could have looked back on on his not very glamorous start in life, right? He's just a shepherd boy from Bethlehem after all, not even big enough to wear King Saul's armor into battle against Goliath. And yet the accusations against David were just a foretaste of what Jesus would face. Jesus was just a manual laborer from Nazareth. His biological father was nowhere to be found. His first bed was a manger. He was a homeless wanderer with a ragtag band of mostly uneducated followers in the eyes of the world, both David and Jesus were just two illegitimate imposters. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've had a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. What does David say? Where does he look when the accusations come? He looks to the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate is the word judge. In a world that wants to judge us by its own toxic and godless standards, David instead appeals to the Lord and his judgments. Kidner writes this, David goes over the heads of his enemies and his friends alike. This is important. When David is feeling accused, he doesn't look to his enemies and say, well, I'm better than you. And he doesn't even look to his friends and gather them around and say, tell me how great I am. That's our tendency, isn't it? We feel attacked or threatened. Well, I just, I'm going to go get my support group to tell me, no, I'm wonderful. But instead, Paul, he goes to God directly. You want to know true freedom in the Christian life? You want to know, know real independence? Then live your life wholeheartedly for the one who matters most, and then everything else is gravy. The Apostle Paul had this perspective in his life. When his motives and his character were attacked by Corinthians, the Corinthians, he says this, With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Church, people pleasing and pleasing God seldom align in the Christian life. To stand on level ground in a world of ever-shifting standards, we've got to submit our lives to the Lord and His agenda and His judgments. And when David submits his life to the Lord's judgments, he understands that his judgments are serious and right. Do you see that little word for at the beginning of verse 2? The reason he can confidently go to the Lord seeking vindication is because he's been living with integrity. David believes God will vindicate him because he's walked in his integrity and trusted in the Lord without wavering. In a world that keeps judging him wrongly or perhaps in a season of suffering and difficulty that people assume is because of some personal sin in his life. Maybe he's like Job. Maybe he's in a season of suffering. Everybody's like, well, you must have done something wrong. David goes to the Lord and says, I have conducted myself with integrity. Church, integrity, personal integrity before the Lord is a marvelous defense in the face of all your accusers. In David's case, integrity doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means something like wholeness or completeness. It means complete sincerity in his walk with Christ. He has trusted the Lord without wavering, which literally means I do not slip. My faith is firmly fixed on the solid rock of Christ. This, this concept of unwavering trust is repeated in the New Testament. Do you remember where it is? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. wasn't long ago that we were in Hebrews. What does is, what is the writer say? Hold fast the confession of our hope. Listen for it. Without wavering. David is serving the Lord and pursuing Him despite suffering and skepticism in his life. How is this possible? How is it possible to constantly be attacked for our faith in Christ and yet to remain consistent in our walk with Christ? It is possible because his hope, his ambition, his agenda is not subject to the world's judgments but instead to the Lord his judge. He has unwavering faith in God who never wavers. In verse 2, David heaps up the synonyms asking God to examine him. Do you see those? Prove me, try me, test my heart and my mind. Everywhere that David turns, he's tested. He's questioned, he's undercut, he's doubted. He just wants to know, though, that he's passing one test. In a world where everybody has a test for you to take and a test for you to pass, David says, I just want to pass the one test that matters. So he goes to the living Lord of the universe and he says, examine me. This is not a test of his intellect, it's not a test of his strength, it's not a test of his ability to win friends and influence people, it is a test of his character, of how he thinks and how he believes and what motivates him and what what, what he values deep within. And he goes to the Lord and he says, God, in a world where everyone is questioning me, Cut me open to the core of who I am and find a heart that is unashamedly driven by a desire to know You and glorify Your Son. And we know that this is the pattern of David's thinking because of what he says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. The Lord's steadfast love. This is the, the language of God's covenant, His faithfulness, His promise keeping because God, Your Ability and desire to keep your promises in love for your people is ever before my eyes. Isn't that incredible? The world wants you to take your eyes off of the Lord and put them on anything else. And the Lord says, excuse me, David says to the Lord, your covenant, your faithfulness, your love is always before my eyes eyes. The Lord is going to win and David keeps his eyes on the Lord's faithfulness, even when his life seems to be falling apart. Even when joining with his enemies would seem to offer relief from all his trouble. The world just keeps accusing. The world just keeps attacking. They keep saying, come and join us. But what does David say next in verses 4 and 5? He shows us in verses 4 and 5 that we must not accept spiritual compromise with the world. We must not accept spiritual compromise with the world. In these verses, David reminds us that standing on level ground in a world that wants you to fall means we must not settle down with people who build their lives on the shifting sands of worldly pleasures. In verse 4, David says, I do not sit, or literally, I have not sat with men of falsehood. Notice the contrast with verse 3. He's going to walk in God's truth or His faithfulness rather than sit with men of falsehood. The only way to live a sure-footed life, to stand on level ground, verse 12, the only way to live a sure-footed life in a world of empty promises is to walk in God's truth and His faithfulness. No matter how tempting No matter what fame or power or riches that the world promises to us, if we go their way, the world is like a drug that that can never deliver the high after the first hit. Did you know only God who is faithful and true can lead you deeper into his presence and deeper into a joy that truly satisfies? David also says in verse 4, he will not consort with the hypocrites. These hypocrites these are people who mask their wickedness and their self-glorifying motivations. Standing on level ground in a wicked world means making wise choices in friendships. David, and, David is basically saying, I want to be a Psalm 1-1 kind of man. What does Psalm one say? Blessed is the man who does what? Walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So, so in verse 4, Paul says, look, I haven't even sat with the wicked. And the word sit doesn't mean just sitting down. It means to, to join yourself in a, in a significant way, to adopt their perspective and their, their attitudes. But then in verse 5, he intensifies the language. In verse 5, David says, not only that he's not sat with them, but he has hated them. Do you see that? That's not a, that's not a neutral word, is it? It's not, our, it's not our favorite word in preschool, you know? Hate your enemies. What are we talking about here? What what this means is David is not neutral about wickedness. He is opposed to it. In verse 12, we read read about a great assembly of worshipers, an assembly of evildoers, however. A counter-assembly is here in verse 5. These are rivals to Christ. Did you know the world, because they're not living for the judgments of the Lord, They live for their own judgments and one of the ways they feel good about themselves is that they can bring you into what they're doing. They're building an assembly. Do you not feel that in our culture today? Is that not the argument? Well, if if you're... If you're following our way, if we're able to grab you off of Team Jesus and put you on our team, then we're victorious. Look at any Christian who abandons the faith or leaves the faith and turns their back on Jesus. They become a hero instantaneously. And then you know what they do? Once they're a hero for a 30-second soundbite or a tweet, the next thing you know, they're discarded and they're looking for their next victim. They are building an assembly of evildoers. They are rivals to Christ. They want their own band of worshipers. They believe ripping you away from Christ and having the upper hand in culture justifies them and their evil. Isaiah 5.20 says, They call evil good and good evil. It's still happening today. The wicked are building an assembly justifying their wickedness with their popularity, but David hates it. Hate sounds strong to our modern sensibilities, but hate is the Bible's word to describe how the Lord and His people relate to wickedness, to those who love the darkness rather than light. John 3.19 Hate is the only word that captures what is truly at stake. Kidner says this, these men that David mentions are potential allies. They, They say, we'll be your friends, David. And they're potential enemies. And he has made his choice. For David, hating their company is not a matter of social preference, but of spiritual alignment. He puts his life and his kingdom in the Lord's hands, and that means that he's got to hate. He's got to separate himself from all that is opposed to the Lord, which begins, of course, with the sin in his own life. But then it moves outward to spiritual separation from attitudes and behaviors and lifestyles that are opposed to Christ, that are anti- Christ. Now a question you might have after reading verses 4 and 5 is, well, what about Jesus? Didn't Jesus eat and drink with sinners? Didn't He sit with the wicked? And of course He did. The Pharisees misunderstood this text believing that it meant you just couldn't associate with them at all. What, what it means is that you can't associate and embrace their lifestyle. Jesus did not sit with the wicked to condone their sin or endorse their sin, but instead to confront it with God's redeeming love. When Jesus sat with sinners, He hated what they were, but He gave them an opportunity to become something brand new in Him. Aren't you glad that Jesus came down out of heaven to sit with the wicked? Not to say your wickedness is okay, but to say let me show you another way in me. He died to make us new. As those who know King Jesus then, there's two things that we've got to get out of this text. First, we can't embrace and support the ways of the wicked. And that's what's happening in churches all across America today. They're embracing the world's lie. Well, We're becoming affirming. We're becoming accepting. We're becoming progressive. There's no such thing as progressive Christianity. If you progress beyond the Word of God, you are regressing. And if you embrace that as your faith, that is not a faith in the Christ of the Bible, and you will die and perish in eternity separated from the love of God. If you call yourself a progressive Christian today, I want to urge you to make true progress in your spiritual life and regress back to the once for all delivered Word of God and progress to the face of the true risen King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, because no other Jesus saves. And if you're looking to the Jesus of progressive Christianity, you are going to be sorely disappointed one day to find out that the face of the one you thought was Jesus was the face of Satan himself. standing on level ground means staying spiritually separated from the wicked even while we give our lives to give them the gospel. We love them. We desire for them to be saved, but we don't give one inch on the standards of Christ as we share the saving message of the gospel. David continues in verses 6 through 8 and You're probably thinking, I'm getting a bit long-winded. We're going to hustle to the end. I'm going to focus in on verses 6 through 8 and then just say a a few brief things about the remainder of the psalm. The last point I want to share with you this morning is we must delight in the Lord's presence, which is possible because of His wondrous deeds. We must delight in the Lord's presence, and we can do that because of His wondrous deeds. Not because of my wondrous deeds, not because of your wondrous deeds, not because of our wondrous deeds, but because of the King of Kings, what Jesus would do. In verse 6, we transition out of a discussion of the wicked, right, to an image of David going around the altar. He's, he's circling the altar there in the tabernacle. He's in the Lord's house, verse 8. This is where he loves to be. While he hates the wicked, it's not just that he walks around hating wickedness all the time. There's something that he loves. He loves to be in God's presence. And when you love to be in God's presence, you're automatically going to hate that which is wicked. He didn't grow up to be a hater. He just happens to hate that which is wicked because he so loves God who is good. Does that make sense? The altar reminded God's people that the price of sin is death. And that the only way to enjoy God's presence is if the price is paid by a sacrifice that is pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. Prior to offering sacrifices, the the priests would wash their hands and their feet, symbolizing the purity of the sacrifice that was required by the Lord. But here, it is not the priests who are washing their hands. It's David, the king, washing his hands. What's going on here? Why is King David washing his hands going around the altar? Could it possibly be that David is prophesying for us that one day there would be a king who would come who would also be our great high priest who would truly wash his hands in innocence and he would delight to go to the altar even though it would require his own life that he would stretch out his arms on the cross in innocence and that he would be in the presence of God and he would offer himself as a sacrifice that we might know him. But here, it's just King David. And he is thrilled to be where God is. He is not just bringing a blameless sacrifice. He is bringing God a holy life. He is vested in what he brings to the tabernacle. He's not just going through the motions. And and I I confess to you that there have been times in my Christian life where I've just come to church because I have to. It's just what I'm supposed to do. And if you're in a season like that this morning, I, I pray that you would grab the heart of David and the heart of God in this text where he says, look, I don't know what I'm supposed to hate anymore. I don't know what I'm supposed to love anymore. And he says, I, the one thing I love, the one thing that will satisfy me is to be in God's presence. As Wilson writes, David is filled by a sense of love for the temple as the place where God and humans come together. The excitement of joining with the international community of the faithful and the wonder of sinful humans being allowed to stand in the presence of the glory of Yahweh. Verse 8, it's almost overwhelming. I pray that you would encounter, whether you're 25, 55, or 105, that you would never tire of encountering the overwhelming presence of God. David's hatred of evildoers is... Not because he walks around hating them all the time, it's because he loves the presence of God. And though David washes his hands in innocence in verse 6, he gives the Lord all the credit for making his knowledge of God's presence possible in verse 7. Do you see that in verse 7? What we see is a picture of congregational singing in the open courtyard of the tabernacle around the altar. Who is David singing with? He's singing with all the people who have gathered for a sacrifice, and he's singing a song of thanksgiving. And what is the subject of the song? Do you see it? He delights to recount or to tell all the great and marvelous and miraculous things the Lord has done. Do you get the picture? There's an altar and there's people and they're, they're bringing their sacrifices and they're delighting in the fact that God will atone for their sin and He's going to accept them. He's going to accept the sacrifice and they're going to get to know the glorious presence of God. And all of this happens around an altar. And I don't want you to miss this. The psalm begins with a plea for vindication. And in a world that is hostile and it's bringing accusations against us and it's begging us to join the wicked as they disregard the Lord and His presence. Instead, David runs into the presence of God and he sings with God's people around an altar, the place of sacrifice, around the very symbol of what makes God's presence possible. And they sing about all the wondrous things that he's done. This, this means his good deeds, his miraculous works. Can you imagine a song that recounts all the wondrous things that God has done? God, you made it all, and then we messed it up, and then you promised to send your Son, and then you marked out in your Word, inspired by your Holy Spirit, exactly what your Son would look like, and then they were slaves in Egypt without hope, and then their brother, Joseph, was able to feed them and they were there for 400 years and somehow you brought them out of slavery and you caused them to cross the Red Sea and you never abandoned your promise to send your son and I'm just David but I know you're going to send a son through my line and so I come to this altar because it represents all that you're going to do through Christ and I don't want you to miss this church. God could have done all of that and if he had never sent Jesus to take your place it would have been like he did nothing at all. What would have been the point of the Red Sea? What would have been a point of making axe heads float and people rising from the dead if God did not send His Son to go to the altar washing not just His hands, but His very life in the innocence of His perfection to take our place. And so when we gather on Sundays, we gather, if you will, around an altar... It is Calvary's cross where a king was crucified for us and all the great things that God has done are wrapped up in that atoning sacrifice. In David's day and in our day, there is an altar that is at the center of our singing. It is an altar where God has done good and wondrous and miraculous things to make a way for us to enjoy His presence, not just when we gather on Sunday mornings, but as we labor day by day in Jesus' name. And we know this is possible because of what John 1.14 says. In the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent with Us, Jesus, the Lord of creation, came down and made His dwelling among us so that He could go to the cross and return to the right hand of the Father and open up access for us in all times and all places. It is in Jesus that we are declared righteous and empowered to live righteously because it is in fellowship and friendship with Jesus where true life is found and lived. So I wonder this morning if there might be some here who've been teetering in life, being torn away from the things of God by the world, wondering why you've not been enjoying the Lord's presence in your life. If that's you this morning, the invitation is to look afresh to Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 26. I want you to look to the only one who never gave in to temptation, who sat with sinners but never shared in their sin, who was accused by the world and by religious leaders but never once acquiesced to their demands. I want you to look to the one who so delighted in the Lord's presence that he gave his life on the cross to be the sacrifice for your sins and to make you new in Him, to empower you by His Holy Spirit, to live in the world as He lived because the presence of God was more precious to Him than the praise of men or even His own physical life. At the end of the psalm, David ends with a statement of complete trust in the Lord as he looks to the Lord to resolve everything in the end. David has made his decision. In a world of accusation, he will live for vindication from the Lord. He will trust the Lord to deal with his enemies. Do you see that in verses 9 and 10? Don't sweep me away with the wicked. The wicked keep accusing me. They keep making me think I'm doing something wrong. They keep making me think I'm crazy. But I'm going to keep my eyes on you, Lord, so don't sweep me away with them in the end. He believes that in the Lord's right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, In the right hands of his enemies, do you see it in verse 10? There's only bribes that end in destruction. But in the hand of the Lord, there are pleasures forevermore. So when he, even when David's enemies seem to be winning, he's going to walk in the way of the Lord. Even when following his father meant walking the road to Calvary, Jesus entrusted himself to the Lord. And, though his, and through His glorious resurrection, He was exalted to the right hand of the Father, where He now reigns as King and opens wide the door of access to God's presence for all who believe in Him. So what do we do in light of Psalm 26? We keep walking in integrity, just as David did. We keep trusting God to secure our lives through the gracious gift of our son we keep looking to the Lord and not to the world because it is in looking to the Lord that our feet find do you see it in verse 12 level ground on which to stand when the world accuses us it is there where we have the assurance of God's presence both now and forever as we bless the Lord now here's a question what in the world does it mean to bless the Lord how do you bless the one who has all the gifts to give I mean, God can bless me by giving me Jesus. He can bless me by giving me health and vitality and a family and a car to drive and a roof over my head. I have a lot of blessings from God. But how in the world do we bless the Lord? What is He talking about? How do you bless the one who doesn't need anything? There's the only one way to do It's to give Him praise and thanksgiving for all that He's given to you. His ambition, His desire, His confidence is that in a world that wants to take me away from the presence of God, if I keep pursuing the presence of God, I will stand on level ground now and there is a day that God will win. And the counter-assemblies will not defeat God. I will stand in the great assembly. I will stand with the multitude drawn from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. God will send His King. His King will live in my place. He will conquer the death I deserve. He will raise on the third day. God will be faithful to His covenant. And one day when He returns, I will stand in the great assembly and I will do what I was made to do. I will bless the Lord who performed the marvelous work of God's salvation through Christ alone this morning if you don't have that hope and that confidence if you're still subject to the whims of the world which by the way the world keeps changing their standard every five seconds it used to be okay to say a man is a man and a woman is a woman now you can't even do that I don't know what next week's standard's going to be but God has one standard And you didn't meet it, but Jesus came and did. And if you will trust in Christ alone, you can know that you will stand in the assembly and bless the Lord forevermore. If you don't have that hope, I hope you'll find it today. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that those who have saving faith can keep looking to Jesus. God, that that when we are tempted to abandon Your standard, You show us that our feet only find level ground by looking to Christ and living for Christ. And God, if there's anyone here today that says, you know, I've I've trusted in Christ, but I've been slipping, and I I need to put my feet back on level ground and pursue the presence of God more than the applause of men. God, I pray you give them liberty to release that to You today. And if there's any here today that just know God they know that if they died today that that they would spend eternity separated from you that they would not join in that great assembly that gets to praise you for your gifts forevermore God I pray you'd give them the freedom and the liberty to come and trust Christ today for it is in him and him alone that we have life and victory God we give you praise for the gift of your son as we stand and sing in Jesus name amen Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.